All right, so for those of you uh, who are familiar with the class, uh, how we do things, uh, we're not doing things that way. And for those of you who are new to the class, well, perfect, because we're doing things completely different and you don't know the difference. So uh, uh, I am. this is being written. I'm doing it from the, the ground up as we're doing it. Uh, but it is. here's how it's going to operate. Uh, today, we're going to be doing a little bit of introduction. What is going to happen, we're going to be dealing with a lot of scripture in here. But that is. But as most of you know, when we read together the scripture in here normally, we get two verses in 45 minutes. It's not because we're slow readers. It's because we, we like to discuss. Uh, we're, that, that's not going to work with this. We're going to have to move. So um, at the end of class today, you will get one of these. Front and back, single spaced. You didn't realize you were going to school again, but here it is. What this is, is at the end of each class, as we're moving on into the next topic, I'm going to give you, um, uh, it's going to tell you what the upcoming issues are, and it's going to have a list of the scriptures that we are going to be covering. Now, uh, I have the text that, um, I'm, I, that I've highlighted. One of the things about this, though, is um, don't just read this. Take it home and read the verses in their context. That's going to be important, not just to read a scripture by itself. And so throughout the week, go through, look at these scriptures, and uh, you'll be ready to come back. Because when we come back together, we're not going to be reading them. We will be referencing them, and we are going to be discussing. There will be a lot more um, discussion-oriented uh, um, and if I fully expect that every person in here will be pretty drastically offended at some point during this uh, study, the reason is, is because we are looking at divisive issues, issues that have split churches, issues that have, uh, uh, I mean, caused massive rifts and schisms and all kinds of things. Um, the goal, though, is is to take these issues and to go looking into Scripture so we can figure out uh, what it is that the Scriptures have to say. Um, we will be look, and, and that, that's the whole thing. Um, the discussions. Uh, I want we want opinions. We want to hear what how everyone's kind of processing it. But the reality is. Um, all of our opinions need to be backed up with something we've read or, you know, be able to say, hey, well, this scripture seems like it's saying this. Not, not, not grandma once told me that uh, her so-and-so told me this. That's, that's not going to, we're, we're dealing in, in the, in the scriptures. Um, I am not trying to cherry pick scripture. That should be pretty obvious with the fact that I'm giving you this nonsense. <laughs> I'm trying to be very thorough with, uh, the scriptures that deal with the things we're going to be talking about. Um, but I'm obviously not perfect. Again, for those of you that are new, you need to know that. For those of you know, that have been here, they already, they already know that. I, uh, I know that there are scriptures that may not be on here. It's not because I'm trying to leave them out. It's not because I'm trying to uh, uh, sway the discussion. So if there are scriptures that you 
uh, in your study and you're looking around and you're thinking about it in your experience that aren't on here, bring those the next week and we will, re we will read them and add them to the discussion. Um, again, it's not, this, this is just an outline to begin process for us. Um, the class is not going to be lecture after today, uh, but all of us together learning how to harmonize the scriptures. I do not believe that I have a full understanding of anything having to do with God, which is a good thing. Ron and I were talking earlier, and Ron said, um, he said, he had a guy one time ask him, he said, he said uh, did you think differently? think differently five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. The answer is, if we all are honest with ourselves, we come to see things differently uh, the more we deal with topics. So that should help us all realize that we're not at the end. We're, we're still in the middle uh, uh, slugging through this. Now, you may ask, why are we dealing with these divisive issues? Um, because my my feeling is, is this. Christianity has come to a point because for so long we fought and fought and fought each other over these differences uh, that we just got, Christianity got tired of it and uh, starting about the 80s, maybe 70s even, uh, there was this ecumenical movement which was the churches trying to come together and impact the world for Christ together. In order to do that, um, we get to where we are now, which is the way we find unity is not in the scripture, it's by not dealing with stuff. We, we, we're just different, but we're all, everything's okay, and, and so we don't talk about things anymore, and that, that's, not, that's not helpful. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we're doing it. One of the other reasons, so um, you may ask, why peak theology? And I spent more time than I should have making that logo. Uh, the, and we're gonna, I'm going to have scriptures up there, so I have this off to the side to try to, to, try to help out. Here, here's why I'm calling it peak. Okay? Um, if, you have a, if you're standing at a mountain, and let's say, that is, I'm already there. I'm standing over here on this side of the mountain. You're standing over on the east side of the mountain. Now, I'm looking at the mountain, and what I'm seeing is pretty drastically different than what you're seeing. I'm looking at the mountain, and I'm seeing, oh, it's a, it's a lush hillside with trees and, and plants and, and, I don't know, playful weird goats. And it's, just, it's just a nice-looking, inviting, relaxing image. But you're on the other side of the exact same mountain, and there's no green grass. In fact, it looks like half the mountain just sloughed off itself. It is nothing but uh, uh, rocks and clay and dirt and jagged edges, and there's nothing living on it. It's just, it's just ugly. So I tell you what this, we'll call it Mount Mountain. So I'm telling you about my experience on Mount Mountain. And I'm telling you about all the green grass and all the lush and how relaxing it was. 
And you're looking at me going, that is not Mount Mountain. Mount Mountain is jagged, horrid, unpleasant. There, I don't understand why anyone would ever go to Mount Mountain. Here's the problem. We both are looking at the exact same mountain. It is the same thing. But our experiences are different, and how we're viewing it is different. It, is one of us wrong? It isn't. We are both correct, but we're saying opposite things. So how do we come to understand each other? How do we come to see the bigger picture? The only way that I do that is standing on top of the mountain at the peak, only at the peak where both sides come together, where they unite, am I able to see that, yes, part of this mountain is extremely inhabitable and unfriendly, and half is the way I remember it, grassy. So the idea here is, I have found in my discussions with people, and maybe you have found this, when you argue doctrine, it's almost semantic. You're, you, you're almost saying the same thing. And it's almost like the, the, the closer what you're saying is, the angrier people get. Because they just they want to just push you over that, that edge. And I, I just, I, I, so we're going to go through this, we're going to look at the scriptures, and what I think you're going to find is, is that in a lot of ways, um, these different doctrines that have separated the church, if we uh, bring them together, if we figure out how they come together, even though they seem like they're saying the exact same thing, let's, let's, let's be honest. Paul says, we are saved by faith and not by works, so that no man may boast. And then James turns around and says, uh, so now we are saved. Uh, so now, brothers, we see that we are saved by, fa uh, saved by works and not by faith alone. Hello, that's a problem. That's a, it, it sounds like they're saying the exact opposite. Again, in my opinion, they're looking at two sides of the same mountain. And, they've, and, and it's perceived differently and spoken of differently, but it's the same mountain. So we're going to be looking at all of those things. The other question would be, um, uh, why is doctrine even important to talk about? Anyone know? What, what, is it, what does it even matter? I have heard people say, oh, all you got to do is believe in Jesus, man. That's all, that's all you got to do. What's the problem with that? That's a doctrine, by the way. All I have to do is believe in Jesus and everything is okay. That is a doctrine. A doctrine is a belief that I shape my entire world. So if I accept that doctrine, I believe everything's fine, nothing else ever matters. I will live according to that belief. That belief will also affect how I view the rest of Scripture, won't it? Because all of a sudden, when Jesus, when Jesus is, is telling the story where um, uh, he, he gathers the sheep and the, the sheep and the goats, and he looks at the he looks at the um, uh, the goats and he says. He says, depart from me, I don't know you. And they said, hey, we prophesied in your name. We healed in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did amazing things in your name. And Jesus' response is, I don't know you. Sounds to me like those people are saying, hey, we, we knew you. We were trying, we were doing all this stuff. And Jesus goes, but I don't know you. I don't know you. So 
how does someone who has accepted this doctrine, how does it affect all of the other scriptures? You see what I'm saying? So, doc, so Paul lays it out. He says, he says that, um, uh, that we need to guard our lives and our doctrine. We have to guard both of them. One, because if sin gets in our life, that will separate us from God. We, we understand that, right? The more, even as a Christian, the more I sin, the more distance there is between me and God. Same thing with doctrine. The more, if Christ is not only the way and the life, but he's also the truth, then if I have, if I begin with a bad understanding that prevents me from reaching the rest of the truth, it's, it, it is also driving me further and further away from God. So I think that's one of the reasons why he said, um, uh, I am the life, the way, and the truth. Or when he talks about worship. This is another one that always gets me too. Where it's like, oh, it's all about the spirit. No, because Jesus said something different, didn't he? He said, he said the worshipers that my father is looking uh, for will worship him in spirit and in truth. So this is, this is kind of um, uh, an, an important thing. So unfortunately, um, I, I find that we have divvied up the scriptures, most of us, we have already decided what we believe. We divvy up the scriptures, the ones that validate our opinion, and the others that, well, James didn't mean to say that. That isn't what Paul really meant. He, he, he was, and, and, and what a shock. We are now to the point where, and I'm not trying to be crass, to where um, one of the big arguments now is uh, the word for homosexuality, it, 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 it it actually means uh, um, a temple prostitute of the same sex. So, so and, and it, it, you see what I'm saying? It's just this weird, this, you can distort yourselves once you leave sound doctrine into basically making the scripture say whatever you, whatever you want it to. Again, we're warned uh, that in the last days people will go after, Paul, Paul says that uh, people will go after teachers that will tickle their ears, meaning say what they want to say, make them happy. Um, just so, so we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to do Okay, yay, page one, let's move on. So, we have to begin somewhere. Assumptions. Now, this comes to the part that Chris thought was hilarious. If you would like one, I have one. I don't expect you. But I have a composition notebook if you would like one to write stuff down. Anyone? You don't have to say yes. You don't have to say, don't say yes and then be like leaving it on the pew like, like, we, like we do with response cards or whatever. You know, oh, I want to respond. No, there is no, this, I just wanted to make this there. So if you, I am a transcriber. I have to hear it and write it to learn it. That's so. I just thought, well, I'll I'll be nice and I'll I'll pick them up. I'll spend fifty cents on you, and you don't have to worry about it. Here's our assumptions. Assumption number one: We are going to. This, these are also called presuppositions. If you want to get fancy and wax philosophical. One: 
we're going to go ahead and start the class assuming that there is a God. Can we do that? Now, uh, for those of you that were here uh, in, the, in the spring, that's what the whole class was about, right? We, we went through, we, we didn't assume anything. We didn't assume anything. And we began with, uh, let's just observe the world, and can we rationally prove that there's a God? And can we rationally prove that it's Jehovah, Yahweh? And I believe we did, so we're going to assume that. Um, and n- I'm not going to argue about it. So there is a God. That's the first assumption that we're going to work with. Um, I know if you're excited, Matrix 4 is being filmed now. Um, But it is. Because because Lana and her sister need more money. All right. We're going to assume that there is a reality. What does that mean? Okay. Because I don't, we're not going to read the scripture within the context that we are in virtual machines, spiritual things in virtual machines, and, or that, that I'm real, you're not real, you're all just put here to get, we're not. Reality is the way it presents itself. I'm, I'm real, you're real, we're in this thing together, and what I do affects you, what you do affects me. We're just going to assume those. Uh, that's, that sounds dumb, but I have had arguments go off the rails by that. And the last one is this. We're going to assume that the Bible is true. Okay. Now, I'm, I didn't use the word fact. <laughs> don't, don't lynch me. See, I'm not trying to offend anybody. What we are assuming is that it is true. That what it says is true in this reality and represents truthfully that God. We are going to... We could do a class, and, and maybe, I, maybe I should at some point do a class on why the Bible is uh, reliable. One of my favorite is uh, all ancient books up until the printing press were, were, were done by, by hand copies. The Bible has the fewest changes, the fewest alterations, the fewest mistakes by like fractions compared to the Iliad, the Odyssey, and any other work. They have massive changes, massive alterations, not the Bible. We're talking, there, there's an accent wrong, a word added, a punctuation mark put somewhere it shouldn't be. Those are the kind of, anyway, all right, we're, I, I said we're not going to do it, and then, and then, here we go. Okay, that's it. That's all we're going to assume. So, the first dichotomy, and because I don't have because you didn't have it to take home, we will do the scriptures together in, in this one. The first dichotomy, which means the, the two things that seem opposite, is this. We'll put it up on the screen. This has it there. And that is scripture. Remember, we said it was true. Is it factual? So we're asking the question, and it makes perfect sense, right? We're here, here we ended with there's a God, there's a reality, and the Bible is true. Now we get to the first really rough thing, which is, is it allegory? Or is it historical factual? What is allegory? What's that? Okay. An 
allegory is a relatable story. Okay, it's a truth without fact is basically what it is. Um, okay, so allegory are neat stories. So basically Aesop's fables, there was no Hansel and Gretel and there was no uh, house made, I'm sorry, Tim, there was no house made out of gingerbread. It wasn't there. Didn't happen. It's a, so it's a false story that teaches a truth that is an allegory. Historical means um, it is this, it is exactly as it presents itself, and you can just take it, take it word for word. All right. So this argument goes all the way back to the early church. I mean, I mean, all, all the way back, okay? Because what happened was, if you're in one city and Paul happened to, if you were in Rome and Paul wrote that letter to the Romans, your entire understanding of Christianity is based on and seen through what lens? The letter to the Romans. So that's, that's, that's all you have. And so you study it and, and, you, and you build and you practice your Christianity based on that. But within the first couple of centuries, people began to get copies of other letters. And the other letters they began to see that they didn't always say the same thing. Like we mentioned, imagine having Romans. We are saved by we are we are saved by faith and not by works. And then you get the book of James, who is Jesus's brother. You get that letter, and all of, now all of a sudden you're going, "What is going on? How does this make any sense?" So, um, and and this was this was intended. So let's go to the first scripture, um, Colossians, chapter four, verse sixteen. Um, Paul, Paul tells the church there in, in Colossae that when, you, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from them. So even then, when these writers, they intended for their works to move. It takes a long time to copy by hand. And the Romans were hunting them down and burning copies they could find. So but as Christianity becomes more legal, as, it, as they become more sophisticated, more copies are going out. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, put that one up there. It says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks, of, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So Peter, toward the end there of his life, recognizes that uh, the people he's writing to, they're kind of confused with Paul. They probably read the letter to the Romans, which is one of his uh, uh, thickest reads as far as trying to understand. The letters were meant to be shared. So as these people begin to find hard teachings, like Peter talks about, as they begin to discover, as Paul talks about them, the mysteries in Christ, those things.
things that have been hidden that are now revealed. As these things happen, they don't know quite how they're supposed to understand it. And so there were The rest of the class is not like this. This is just setting the groundwork. I promise. I promise. I'm just, I'm just painting the picture so we understand why we're doing this. All right. So there was um, two main cities, Antioch and Alexandria. So I'm going to write weird words up here. And Jenny told me I probably shouldn't do this, but I, I don't. Antiochians and Alexandrians. What happened was, the more they had access to these documents, two methods of interpreting them came out. One was a group in Antioch that compiled as many copies, as many different letters as they could. Same thing happened in Alexandria, where the largest, uh, the world's largest library was, um, or used to be. Um, in Antioch, they decided that we need to um, uh, we need to look at the words of the scripture and take them verbatim. No alterations. It needs to be as straight as possible. We need to understand, they need to understand the linguistics. Um, we need to understand the context. That who is it written to? Who is it for? We need to understand what they would have thought about it when, when they got it. And ultimately they were looking for the most literal translation possible. Well, down in Alexandria, they decided to do things a little different. In Alexandria, they looked and they said, well, you know what? Most of this isn't factual. So you think that's a new thing. It's not, that's not a new thing. It's been this way from nearly the beginning. They came up and said most of the stories, most of the things in there, they're not factual. They are allegory, stories that are false, but they share a truth that is from God. And so when they read a passage, when they read the uh, story of, of uh, uh, Noah's Ark, they did not believe that there was a flood. They did, not, they did not believe that there was a literal Noah. They don't believe that any of that happened. They would look and say, why was this story shared? So one, what is the story trying to teach? And then they would try to find the hidden meaning, the hidden spiritual meaning of that. And so they could, I mean, they came up with all kinds of weird things. And the early church fathers, there are, there are letters flying. This goes back to our church history we talked about. We didn't talk about this. Letters flying back and forth between, between these people and that people all yelling at each other, I mean, over, over this, these issues about, about whether there is secret knowledge or whether there isn't secret knowledge. Is it allegory? Is it, is it not allegory? And it, why does this matter? So I'm going to ask this. Why does this matter? It's God's word. But what, what does it matter if it's factual or false but true? Why does it matter? The allegorical person would say, yeah, we're giving you the truth. We're just not giving you facts.
kind of reminds me of our day and age where people say, well, I feel it says this. I feel this is what is meant. Like our, con- oh, no, my goodness, I can't go there. I'm about ready to go on the Constitution. I don't understand people that say, I'm not interested in what it meant. Here's what I think it means. I don't care what you think it means. Let's, but okay, but, but that, it's never changed. We as human beings, we either want factual or we want uh, uh, what, it, what, it, what we think it, it's supposed to mean. Okay? We've always been this way. It happened then. So let me, um, uh, interestingly enough, one of these won out by the fourth century. Which one won? It did not. The Alexandrian allegorical one. A guy by the name of Augustine made it very, very popular. He came along and said basically everything that's taught is, I mean, I mean, the guy was brilliant, but it was, it, it's allegory. It's just teaching spiritual truths. And so begins what we now know as the imperial or the Roman Catholic Church. Did you ever wonder how the Roman Catholic Church ended up so drastically different than what the New Testament talks about the church being? I mean, I mean, it's not the same. Huh? August, Augustine was one of them. There were others. Uh, Origen was probably one of, the, one of the biggest ones. He was originally called a heretic, but then he was brought back in after they embraced his method. Um, anyway, the whole point is that, um, so the church, about the 400s, 500s, decided that basically scripture, we got to find the hidden spiritual truths. Then they go off the, it just goes off the rails. And all of a sudden, you move from adults who are coming to Christ to, to infant baptism comes up. Doesn't come up until this point. We'll talk about that later. Uh, Mary, uh, this is interesting. Mary, uh, d- most of you don't know this, uh, it, unless, you're, unless you were Catholic in Catholicism. Uh, Mary was also born of a virgin. The word immaculate conception is not referring to Jesus. It is referring to Mary. She was born of a virgin. Why? Because of the allegorical method of interpretation. On and on and on. It just twists to the point where to the point where the Bible specifically, Paul says, be careful because men are going to come that are going to teach you, and he's talking to a pastor. They're going to teach you, uh, they're going to forbid you from being married and forbid you from eating meat. But then here it is just a couple hundred years later, and that's exactly what the imperial church does. They forbid their priests from, for one, they change them to priests, and it just gets very weird. It's one of the reasons why they have priests. They looked and they said, well, the Old Testament had priests, so our elders are really, really the spiritual priests of this priesthood. And, And it just, it all comes out of, not being literal. So then in the 1500s, after a nice thousand years of this, go ahead, Jeff.
tells us what it means. But when everything's hidden, when everything's hidden, you've got to have special people to figure it out for you. So as you mentioned, so the Reformation happens in the 1500s, and uh, they come back to this method. So you didn't even realize, but what we're talking about right here is why the Reformation happened. It's why the split happened. It's why there's Catholic and Protestant today. So they came up, and, and they used a phrase... Sola Scriptura, which basically means Scripture only. What that what that what that means is they were they were not interested in what someone else wrote about what the Scripture said. They're going to only read the Scripture. Everything was Scripture only. You want to understand something? You read the Scripture. That's it. You want to memorize something? You memorize the Scripture. There was because everything was going back to only the Bible. But that got kind of whacked out a point to the point where the group that I came out of couldn't even use instruments because it was not specifically said that you could. So, now we've come to this point where now we just, because of this argument, we don't even care. People don't even care. I don't even care if it's allegory or fact. It doesn't matter. I just love Jesus and everything's great. It's awesome. So somehow we've come together by just ignoring the fact that there is something So, um, I think, not surprisingly, God uses both. It's not one or the other. Um, I'm saying again, only this class is like this. The rest are going to be special. I promise. I'm going to get through this. So, the reason I dealt with that was so that we could understand how do... What's the point of my handing out this? What's my point of us talking about Scripture? If I'm, if I'm going to read it one way, you're going to read it another way, and we're going to, I mean, have you ever had a, as a, having been raised Protestant, having a biblical discussion with a Catholic is almost maddening. They, they, we don't think, you just don't even think alike. It, it's, it's, it's just completely different, and it's because of this. Okay? Um, I, and I'm sure they feel the exact same way with me because we just don't. What do you mean? You're taking everything so literally. That's what I would often hear. You're taking everything so literally. Yeah, why aren't you taking any of this seriously? You know, and that's kind of how I look at it. But So this is this is important. So, boom, two, one more. All right, types of scripture. This helps us understand it. First five books of the Bible are called the law the Pentateuch, whatever, it's the first five books. It has a purpose. It is written for a purpose. Its purpose is to give the Jewish people identity. Here's the story of your God. Here's what your God did. Here's how what your ancestors did. Here's what brought us to this point right now. We have just come in the promised land. Here's who you are as a people. 
right after the law comes the history. Okay? That's mostly not disputed by most people. It's pretty fact. So-and-so begat so-and-so and did this, and this king rose up and did this and this, and this war happened in this nation and blah, blah. All that stuff happened. There's a, there's a lot of facts in that history. Now, in the New Testament, you have history as well. What book is that? Oh, that's funny. It's Acts, which is the facts. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, Acts in the New Testament is history. Uh, what books, What we know that the, uh, the law gives the, the Jews their identity. What books give us our identity? Ah, the Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, He was with God in the beginning. It, it, it basically starts right back over with the Gospels, right? So, Christians, let me tell you the story of what happened. Here's what your God did, here's how He did it, and here's how Jesus ended up here, and now here's the story of Him. So that by the end, you know who you are. By the end of the Gospels, it's about your identity. Then you get to Acts, which is history. Then, in the, in the Old Testament, you have the poetry wisdom books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job. I, I don't know if I need to write down what, what kind of literature is this. It's very interesting. I did a study in this. It, it, it blew my mind. Look at Job and look at Song of Solomon. They're both plays. Plays. The, theatrical production. Theater in that day and age, you had the protagonist, the antagonist, and then you had the chorus behind them that was there to witness what the two were doing. And so what you have in Job is you have the main character, and then you have the friends that come in and interact with him. It, it's, it's a play. It goes back and forth just like that. Same thing with Song of Solomon. It's a play. The lover and the beloved. And then there's the chorus of people that are with him. It, it, it was, they were, they, they, that's what they were, were, were for. Um, so then we get to, then after that, there are two other types of scripture. And it's going to sound like they're the same, but they're not. Prophecy. What is prophecy? Did foretelling, foretelling. What's that? Almost. That's right. He, he brought up the next one. Revelation is different, which most people don't realize it's different. Prophecy is. Jonah, go tell the Ninevites, because of their sin, I'm going to obliterate them. Not a lot of question about what's being said there, right? He has a message, go and tell them, this is factual, this is, I mean, it's, it's laid out. A lot of the prophecy is just laid out like that. Revelation is different. They, have a, they don't hear, they don't receive a word, they have a vision, a dream, and it's always symbolic. 
Joseph. You see him, the terrors bow down before him, the sun and the moon bow down before him. It's funny because his dad, when he tells him the vision, his dad knows exactly what he's talking about. What, do you think we're going to bow down to you? Your mom and I aren't going to bow down to you. You didn't have to explain it. When you look at this, when you're dealing with the law, you're probably dealing with what? Judgment. Historical or allegorical? Is it, is, is it fact or not fact? Most likely fact. Just because of the way it's written. It's, it, when something says it's something, assume it is. History, fact or allegory? Poetry, fact or allegory? Now, this is where people don't like what I have to say here because Job is a, I don't know if Job was a real guy or, or, if, it, it is, or if it is just a, mo- a morality question. I don't know. But it, 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 is, it is clearly allegory. It's teaching a lesson that goes along the way. It's, it's not, it doesn't feel fact. I mean, Satan goes broken into heaven. Who saw that? Okay, I'm just saying. All right. Prophecy. Fact or allegory? This one? Fact. Most likely. Revelation? Fact or allegory? So you have Revelation chapter 12, where it says uh, uh, there was a woman with a star, with, with a, the crown of stars, and she was in labor, and the dragon came to eat the child once it was born, and then uh, it was born, but then um, it was caught up into heaven, so the dragon gets mad and throws it into void heaven. Now, it's factual in the fact that that's what John saw, that right? John, in his vision, saw it. It was factual. It, it, it's literal. That's what John saw. But the message, very clearly, is allegory. It, it, there, there isn't a space woman with stars floating around her head. That, um, well, maybe there is, but it, it seems to be allegory. So, how you interpret is first of all based on what. Next thing. Next slide. Types of instruction. Craig, I need like three more of these. Just line them up and reel them. Types of instruction. Here's okay. So the first one, uh, for us, to, and, and I'm going to show you where these are in Scripture. I, I'm not making. I'm not making this up. It's right there. Uh, the first one is um, command versus guideline. What's the difference between a command and a guideline? A command is, you do this. And a guideline is, it's advisable to do this. Put the scripture up here. This is right out of 1 Corinthians, right out of the New Testament. So Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, now as a concession, 
not a command. <laughs> I mean, I, we, do we need to read the rest of the passage? I mean, that, that was it right there. No, he says, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, talking about his celibacy. He, he was unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, um, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, which means what? Is this a guideline or a command? Well, this is a command. This is coming from God. Uh, I give this, uh, I, not the, or, or he says, he says uh, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, he's referring to Jesus' instructions on divorce. Now, here's what he says. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. So Paul is telling us right now, this is, so I'm going to give you a guideline that is not coming directly as a command. And then he says, if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, otherwise your children would be unclean. There's a lot. Um, so the point there being, um, right there, Paul makes clear, here's a command from God, and here's a guideline that I'm giving you. So when we read the scriptures, one of the things we want to figure out is, is the instruction a command? Or is it a guideline? Because we see right there, it's a guide command. There are guidelines that are in there. How many? Well, that'll be up to you to decide probably next week. The next type of command is unique versus universal. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do? And he says, keep the law, you know, keep the law and do all of these things as you have done. And he says, I've done all those things since I was a kid. And Jesus says, he looked at him, he loved him. And he said, all right, there's something I want you to do. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor. Come follow me. Is the command to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor that for all of us? Or was it for the rich young ruler? It was a unique command. Okay? So here's the example that I use. Uh, John chapter 21. Go ahead and go to the... Um, this is at the end of Jesus, uh, before he ascends. He says this to Peter. He says, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old... You will stretch out your hand, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. History tells us that he was dragged out and stretched out his hand. He, according to history, he was crucified like Jesus did. So Jesus says, then he says, um, you're going to be crucified. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Now he is, what he's saying is, you're facing crucifixion. Follow my example. 
Peter turned, as most of us would when we're told we're going to be crucified, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on him during the Last Supper and had said, Lord, what is it that, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Kind of how we, we do. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He is giving Peter a very unique instruction of what's going to happen in his life and what Christ expects of him. There are teachings that are that are that are like this, where um, it is it may be for that time, it may be for that place. It may, the disciples made a lot of decisions, some that are commands for us to be able to sort out what that is. All right, here's a fun one. <laughs> I'm having fun, I hope. I hate this. The red always goes out. Prescriptive versus restrictive. Okay, what, 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 is, what does that mean? So... Prescribed means you must. Restrictive means you must not. Now that's that sounds like it it, it, it it shouldn't you would think it's saying the same thing. It is it is not. Um, don't be greedy and be generous are not the same thing. I cannot be greedy and still hold on to all of my wealth or use it according to my will and not God's will. You see what I'm saying? I can still. So there, there's a difference between prescriptive and restrictive. Let me give you an example. 1 Timothy 3.2 in the instructions on elders. He says, therefore, an overseer, an elder, and I think we, you guys all do understand I don't make decisions in the church. I don't. It's not my place. I make decisions on what happens. The decisions in this church happen because of the elders. They are the leaders. It says an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. There's one... They all make sense. One of them you have to ask the question. Is it restrictive or prescriptive? And that's the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Could Jesus be an elder? Could Paul be an elder in the church? They did not have a wife. So is this, is this an instruction that one must have a wife to be an elder? Is it prescriptive? Or is it restrictive that an elder must not, or an elder must only have one wife? Because in that day and age, it was a polygamous society, and there were people who had multiple wives who were coming to Christ. One is saying it must be this way, and one is, one is restricting, one is prescribing. You have to have a wife, you have to be married and have one wife. And the other is saying, you cannot have more than one. And I'm going to be honest, both can be 
you can completely read it both ways, depending on whether you want to, on which you tend to take. Is it prescriptive or restrictive? Is it mandating it or is it, or is it qualifying it? One of them is that an elder must uh, control his household well and must have leading children. So does that mean that someone in his 70s who didn't have any children but had a wife, does that mean that he can't be an elder because he didn't have kids so that they could believe? Or does that mean if he had them, he had to have demonstrated that he knew how to manage them? Anyway, yeah, those two words. I'm, I'm, I'm about out. All right. We're just going to keep going because the kids aren't done yet, so I'm just going to keep pushing until you, you like to leave. I put a knee on there. I'm sorry. Implicit versus explicit. What's the difference between implicit and explicit? Thou shalt not kill. Implicit or explicit? Explicit. It says it. Abortion is wrong. Implied? Or does the Bible actually use the word abortion? It's implicit. Meaning it is. It Nowhere does the Bible say shall not um, end a pregnancy. It doesn't say that. It does say that you shouldn't murder. And so we imply from that 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 would include ending a life in the womb. Which is why every, which is why the argument is always when life begins. That's why that's, that's why it's the argument. Because we all know explicitly that murder is wrong. It's where is life in the question? Okay. So, in the scriptures, uh, uh, which is it? Oh, uh, so here, here's one. Look, uh, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, an explicit instruction or implicit? Is it implied or is it blatant? It is explicit. He says it. Go, baptize. There's, there's no, I wonder what he means by that. No, okay. But, let's go to Acts chapter 22, verse 16. After Paul has seen, uh, after Paul has seen Jesus on the way, on the road to Damascus, and he's been blind for three days and he has not eaten or drunk, Ananias comes to him and Ananias says this, why do you wait Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Does this say you should be baptized once you believe? It doesn't say that. Is it implied? In Ananias' mind, it's obvious. He's looking and going. Uh, he doesn't come out and say it, but you can feel the urgency. What are you doing? Get up. Get in the water. Let's get this going. 
it's implied. You can also go every person, every story of conversion in Acts. Sometimes it says they believed. Sometimes it says they confessed. Sometimes it says uh, that they repented, but it always adds, always adds, and they were baptized. So if we look at that, what do, what do we imply? That the first step of someone who believes is baptism. You can imply that. It doesn't specifically say that. It doesn't say the first act you shall do is. It's just every example shows it. What's that? Except, well, the thief on the cross. Well, right. The water wasn't going to reach him up there. Uh, okay, so last one. It's three points. Can you bear with me? Bear with me, please. All right. Last one. And I am out of space. So. Just going back to the third point. Last one is this. Going to last principles of interpretation. So there's going to be three main ones. Just, just we're going to keep these in our head when you're reading. See, that's why I hand you the little, the little flippers, uh, papers, so that, you know what, when you're reading these, just ask yourself these questions. Just get in the practice of this. Once you start doing it, it, starts, it just becomes natural. Hmm, isn't that good? The first one is this. I'm just going to say it. I'm not going to write it down. Scripture does not contradict itself. Principle number one. If we go back to the beginning, as we assume there is a God, there is a reality, and the Bible is true, then we have to accept the fact that the Bible does not contradict itself. So Paul's saying that we are saved by faith and not by works, and James saying we are saved by works and not by faith alone cannot be in disagreement. When the scripture seems to say something that is that it, it looks like it's in disagreement, it isn't the scriptures that have the problem. It's our ability to see how they're both true, which brings us back to the pew. We just want to stand on our side and yell about which way it is instead of trying to see it both, try to understand it. So that's the first one. Um, real quick, Second Peter 1.16, uh, he says, we, do, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty uh, this is this is my beloved son with whom I will please. Next slide. Um, uh, we ourselves heard this very voice, this voice born from heaven. Uh, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. Um, then, then going down, it says, uh, "No prophecy of Scripture." Is that right? Yeah. For no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we are, we are assuming that uh, if Paul says one thing and James says something else, if they're both being led by God, both statements are true. We have to figure out how. That's how we, our interpretation. We don't get, I don't, people do this. I don't, we're not writing off half of the scriptures because we just don't like what it says. We don't want to deal with it. Okay. Um, number two. Proper, in, proper uh, interpretation comes from context. If it's in Revelation, it's probably going to be allegory. 
If it's in 1 Samuel, it's probably going to be fact. We're just going to look at, the, look at how it's written. Let it present itself. Okay? What, what does it claim to be? The Gospels claim to be the stories of Jesus' life and his teaching. So we're gonna, we, we assume it's true. That's what we assume. Okay? Um, Jesus dealt with this with the Pharisees, Mark 6. We're almost done. Mark, Mark 7, 9 to 13. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother will surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. It was this rule that they'd come up with that if, if you dedicate your money to God, you don't have to give it to your parents. Nice. Uh, then, you, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So we, we, we've got to keep it in context. I don't, I don't just get to decide that... Uh, uh, God wants me to dedicate my money to him. So that means I don't have to take care of my mom and dad. And Jesus is going, that's what you're doing, and it doesn't work that way. You have to understand the context that it's in. Um, so, last one. Proper interpretation looks for, and, 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 and this probably sounds like context, but it isn't. It's intent. And, and this is, a, you have to kind of put yourself in the picture here. In the book of Revelation, this is, this is a fun one that gets, everyone loves Revelation, we talk about the end times, all that stuff. Okay. In the book of Revelation, he writes letters to seven churches right then to encourage them about what they're going through. So was Revelation written to them or to us? Who was it for? It was written to them. So the meaning of this book is probably going to apply to them more than it applies to us. Now, that could, I'm just saying, if I write you a letter and someone else gets it and goes, Nathan just wrote Jim this letter, and he's talking about the end times, and I'm just talking about worship and guitar, and they're pulling out it's all about uh, heavenly worship. and I'm right, If I write Jim a letter about worship at church, I'm probably talking about worship at church. Why was I writing it? Who was I writing it to? What's the point? Okay. That's how we're going to move forward. If something presents itself as allegory, it's probably allegory. If something is literal, it's going to be literal. We're going to, we're going to use the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. So here's where we're going. Why am I doing this? I really mean it when I say it. It's not going to be like this for very long. So just read them. What you will see is here, here are the upcoming issues. The first one we're going to ask, and the early church did this, we're going to ask ourselves this question. Was Jesus man or God? Which was he? How much? But why? Why do you think that? Because you've been told that, right? Someone's told you that along the way. Do you know why? You going to take it? All right. Then the second one is this, and this one, oh, okay. We're building here. I'm stuck. 
trust, trust me when I say this because uh, where we're starting, you have to start there. If you don't, if the second issue, so the first one is, was Jesus man or God? And the scriptures are on here. We're going to have a question of what sin is. And then the second issue is going to be this question. Is humanity inherently good or totally depraved? Again, that may not sound like a big deal. You may wonder what in the who you may wonder who cares. What's the point? But these are the base, base beginning questions that if you don't have an answer for this, then you really have you really these are the found these are foundation who did I miss? Oh, I oh, turn it to them and I want you guys to search them out. That's your assignment. You figure out what I have. So, um, so real quick, third century, fourth century, that one right there was a big one. After the, um, how do we interpret the scripture, was who is Jesus? That's a big one. There's a reason we're going to settle this one first. But you guys are going to settle it. I'm going to let you talk. I, I want you guys to teach me something, too. Uh, and then the other one is, is humanity inherently good or totally depraved? That, that question is another one that changed the early church into the Roman Catholic Church. And that that one, how you answer that one, will tell me uh, it, it, it heads you down of one of two paths. There's no middle ground. And once you head down, whichever one you head down, that's where you're going to end up. So basically the question is, um, am I born good? I mean, I'm born into a fallen world, but am, am, I, am I good? Or am I born already guilty of sin? Am I, am I already messed up the moment I'm conceived? What's defined as good? Well, that, you can bring that up next week. Questions? Okay, all right. Now, yes. You're right. I know. We're going to get into it. He, he said, he said you, you are born uh, when you are conceived because God allowed it. And I think the idea there is that he's going with is that uh, why would God create something in the mother's womb and make it evil? Well, that's, that's, that's going to be a really good question to discuss with this. But remember, we can ask, you can ask any question, but the answers are scripture. And interpretation of that. Any feedback? Anything you want me to hear? Anything you want to bring up? Because I have half a class next week. I'm just going to be so defensive. Nope. Nope. Okay. To be fair, in professor of mine had a really had a really good uh, uh, way of understanding saying this. If you want to read and feel feel the heart of the scripture, you can read things like the message, the New Living Translation. They're very easy to read, very fluid, very, I mean, it's not choppy. If you're, if you're going down to try to understand what it says, you need something that you know. What's on the page is most likely what the actual word was in the other which is going to, which is why I use ESV. ESV is kind of in the middle. 
I'm going to make you do this. I don't even care. I want a commitment. I want a commitment that you will at least see what class two is like. Is that okay? Can we do that? You'll see what class two is like. And if it bombs, man, get out of here because I, I might not even show up at school. I'm just kidding. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much. Your word matters. And words, words matter. The words that we say to each other matter. We're careful in what we say to one another and how we speak to one another. And, God, we want to be careful with the words you've used. Um, if we're going to, to share what you have said with the world around us, then we want to do so faithfully. And we, we want to be, be honorable with that. So, God, in this, it's a lot of heavy stuff, but we want to read your word and understand it. We want to picture it. We want it to be clear. And so, God, I pray right now that you settle our minds and our hearts and you open up, open us up completely to your truth and allow us just to see it. May it just pour forth from the page. And I pray that as we read these things, that you speak to us, speak unique things, and let each of us come back having heard from you and having been led by your spirit to some things that we had never even thought about before. And as we come next week, may we all come something something to share, an idea of that that you have already shared with us. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your love, and we thank you that you lead us directly and you don't just abandon us. We pray this in your name.